0: Hello, my name's Marianne, and today I'll be talking about how understanding the origins of racial discourses in the early modern period is valuable to our understanding of race and racism today. I grew up in Uganda, and I I can't really say that I experienced racism personally, um, not directly anyway. not with any of the non-Black people that I interacted with. Uh, I had a Dutch grandfather. He had, um he was also a priest. <laughs> he adopted my dad and his brothers. And so I recognize right now that I also had a certain amount of privilege. So, um, and, you know, most of the non-Black people that are, that we interacted with were sort of in his close circle as well so there's a chance that we were spared from anything they might have wanted to say to our faces because we knew him and um kind of that phenomenon of like i've actually had people say this to me before you're not like other black people and it's like okay cool um, so I can't, I can't say I've personally experienced racism. I know it's very internalized. I also know that, um, uh, people that work on, uh, Asian, like, plantations in the eastern part of a country do experience racism, and I think that's, I think that's most of it. I, for the most part, any stories I've heard about interactions with white folks, are mostly good because most white folks are coming to, you know, during tourism season uh, in the summer. And they're for the most part nice, but Indians, Chinese, Japanese, Korean people who live in the Eastern part of the country, I know to treat uh, the locals like dirt. Um, but yeah, beyond that, I think most of, as an adult now, I realize we mostly experience internalized racism, and it's not something everybody's aware of. I, um, in 2020, at the height of the Black Lives Matter protests, I remember, um, like, I, <laughs> I, remembered something from my childhood I remember right after I went to boarding school I was seven um, I was in the third grade and it was a Catholic boarding school so you had to we had to learn to incorporate like my I, I was raised Catholic anyway but um, praying in Catholic schools a chore it's, a, it's another thing on your to-do li- on, on your to-do list and I remember very distinctly, not once, not twice, it happened. I, I want to say, the whole term, and I'm sure it happened a little bit even after I was older. I would kneel down and pray with all my might to wake up white, blonde, and blue-eyed. I didn't like my hair. Not that boarding schools in Uganda let you keep your hair, um, but I didn't like that I had nappy curls. I wanted my hair to be straight. Um, you know, a lot of people are like, oh, I'm going to grow up and I'm going to go abroad. I'm going to like get married to a white man or something because whiteness is equated to success, to access, um, to prosperity and like an all around great life and blackness is, you know, equated to being good enough at best depending on the situation, Um, but it also means constantly, constantly making yourself smaller so, you know, white folks around you, at least immediately around you, don't feel um, threatened or uncomfortable, which is a really hard thing to do when your skin, not your personality, not not anything you've done, your skin is the thing they're like averse to. Um, earlier in the course, reading Emerine um, Dada Boy's article, um, she cites Queen Elizabeth the royal proclamation draft, which, um, for all intents and purposes, states that she is. "Quote unquote distressed by the number of Negroes and Blackamoors in England who um, are exp- the—they're not Christian, but they're also um, exploiting resources meant for the English population. I eat the white Christian, it, like the <laughs> the proper English population, um, which." Sure, if some some someone might argue not wanting to look after more people than you can afford to, but you know it's different when a it's the negroes and blackamores, and then it's also uh it, it it becomes different too. It's like there's not wanting to to feed more than you can afford to, but it becomes different when you're willing to exchange them for human beings that are captive. If you can sell a human being, if you can exchange a human being for another human being, especially if the human being you are giving in exchange for this other person is of a different skin color, a skin color you maybe not consciously, but you definitely, well, you don't consider them like you. So it's easy to disregard them. And whether or not it's a conscious thing, the implication of that is that other, um, the non-white people and non white Christ like um non white and non Christian folks are just not as important as white Christian folks. So you know and I mean also consider um missionaries and their religious teachings, at least uh when they're when they helped um all the great powers, uh, European powers, colonize African countries. uh, And, like, just, like, general anecdotes about the world, like, whiteness and the light means good. Whereas darkness symbolizes evil. And, And then you have And, and then you, you've you got, you know, England being mostly Protestant. And, and then you have the Negroes and Blackamores at, at the time, at least the ones that uh, Elizabeth I is referring to, not being Christian. They're not pagan. We, um, we can suspect that much, because she doesn't straight up call them pagan, but it's obvious that she doesn't believe, or uh, at the very least a- approve of whatever their religion is, most likely Muslim. Um, it, it just it creates those, um, I, th- I think microaggressions is the right word. Um, but it maybe not. But that creates images unconsciously I'm gonna say mostly because a lot of stuff is is learned and um but when you have white mostly white playwrights in this period of time writing characters and writing for black characters without knowing what it is like to be a black character and possibly without even um speaking to ever meeting ever interacting with, ever consulting a Black person, a Turkish person, a Muslim person to know what their experience is. Um, People like to argue that um, racism didn't exist (laughs) in Shakespeare's time, which I find really interesting because, I mean, maybe not uh, maybe not the way we know it today, but It's interesting that when they wrote for, when they wrote black characters into their plays, Shakespeare and all these other um, playwrights, they usually write one, they write one other character, one non white character, or they differentiate the other characters. Like in the Battle of Alcazar, Malihamet is darker than, you know, uh, the rightful heir to the throne. Um, Othello is a soldier. He is black. He's the only black uh, soldier in, his, uh, in, in the kingdom. And he is tolerated because he's good for something. But they're constantly referring to him as the Moor. Um uh, Aaron and Titus is, I mean, Lucius refers to him as the devil, which, you know he can't he can't help the color of his skin. But um, he also, he plays into a stereotype. but that's not, I like I wouldn't say it is a decision that he makes. For himself as a character, because he is being written by a white playwright, by Shakespeare, for a white audience. And whatever stereo he is a living, breathing stereotype he is. Quote unquote violent. He um he reminds me of, you know, in cartoons when you have um like angel on one side and the devil on the other side trying to the angel's trying to talk you out of doing whatever crazy thing you're going to do and the devil's like go ahead do it um Aaron reminds me of the devil because you know for most of the play he doesn't actually do anything bad he just is that little voice encouraging you <laughs> to give in to your you know worse nature and most people listen to him And he, you know, enables them, which for all, you know, for all intents and purposes is his worst crime. But he is, is like, if I told you go shoot somebody, or if you said I wanted to kill someone, I was like, okay, go ahead, do it. (laughs) It, It's still up to you to not do it. If you pull a trigger, that's on you. That's a decision you made. And I shouldn't have to be punished for it. But, you know... Um, Aaron is held back because of his blackness. He doesn't advance the way the goths do, Um, and he is violent and you know just for you know he's just essentially evil. He's an evil presence, and this, um, the sorry, (laughs) this. Preconceived, the preconceived notions that people have about him are transferred onto his son. And it's like, he's mostly ignored. Unless people want something from him. He's mostly ignored. And then, um, it becomes a, a real problem when he refuses to kill his child. And then suddenly, you know, <laughs> everybody has an opinion and wants to do away with him. But, you know, when he's encouraging uh, and enabling them, you know, all's good and well that ends well. Until, you know, he challenges the way they see him and the way they see his son. And he stands up to them, which makes them defensive because, you know, they've, though, White folks in this scenario have to protect their their power, their position of authority. Um, and you know, for me, the way I see it is, you know, it's one thing for Elizabeth the First to say, you know, I am distressed by there being black people in England. I don't want them here." And then for playwrights to stage plays repeatedly that portray non-white folks, Turks, um, just Muslims, or black people in stereotypical ways or just making them evil to highlight how great whiteness is it's you're not directly telling people hey all black people are bad but you're creating this sort of repeated image that people that the audience again consciously or unconsciously are going to leave the theater with and they're going to project that onto any and all for instance black people you've got mostly violent men aaron's violent othello's violent because he murders his his wife even though he's you know mostly a good guy who gets deceived by a white guy but you know it's a create it's it's a repeated it's a repeated image that's given to an audience and they leave with that and project it onto onto Black people. It's not just the one Black person in this fake scenario that acted this way. Suddenly, the sins of that character are thrown onto people who have nothing to do with it. You know, most of the media I consumed um, before I moved to Canada, before I was like... Before I, I... Before I knew enough to pick and choose actively what I wanted to see and what I didn't want to see. Uh, most, most of the media I consumed almost always portrayed black men as violent, as criminals, gang bangers, um, with white men, usually cops, as saviors. And in any media where they bothered to have black black women, they were evil. They were witches. They were single black women who um, were villainized for not being able to keep a man or for uh, fraternizing with violent black men. And just all around... Black women did not have the respect of society. They didn't deserve it. And I mean, as much as it pains me to admit, that, con- that contributed to my preconceived notions about being Black in America. It, I mean, I, there was like slight differences between being Black in Africa where it's largely black Black people like you There is internalized racism and other effects of colonialism that make life really hard, but ultimately our existence is not the same as black people in America, where their ancestors, most of them were slaves, and that's sort of the legacy they're working um, from at the moment um moreover a lot of ideals carried over by missionaries into African countries um made it really hard to not see ourselves from out of a white gaze it's like missionaries came over colonialists came over and pounded into African people's heads you're not good enough you are not better, you are not as good as white people. We're doing you a favor by taking your land and forcing you to work for us for no wages and you know hurting your women and destroying your kingdoms, you know, and this is okay. And you know, it becomes really hard for people. I mean, you you put that in somebody's head, you torture somebody long enough and ask them to say something, they're going to say something. And people end up believing things like that. And then it ends up going from generation to generation to generation. And then you have to keep dealing with this stuff, which we see today with like generational trauma from people who have ancestors who were enslaved. It's a lot of stuff that hasn't been dealt with. I mean, you still have today parents black parents teaching their children how to not get killed by the cops if a cop tells you to stop stop be respectful yes sir if you have a white friend with you and they're talking shit you can't talk shit you don't have that liberty you know if you're in a car have your hands where they can see them at all times announce what you're doing it it shouldn't be something that people have to teach kids who are five years old but it is a thing that happens because of the white gaze black people are seen a certain way and we haven't been able to or yeah we haven't been able to escape that so we have to work with that and hope for the best and hope that somebody sees our humanity and doesn't decide to you know Put another black body on the ground. Like David Sterling Brown's article, Is Black Sobasa Hue, he argues that racist inertia only sees black people as black bodies, which it it's not it's never something that occurs to you, at least it didn't occur to me until I read the, the statement when, when you see so many black bodies on streets lifeless because a cop said he felt threatened by somebody walking down the street in a hoodie or a man not <laughs> resisting arrest on the ground handcuffed or a child playing with a water gun if innocent activities that everybody partakes in, except they're getting arrested and nobody really gets arrested for fun, but things that shouldn't put your life at stake usually end up putting Black people's lives at stake. And the reason there's so many Black bodies on the streets is because in most cases, the white folks that killed these Black people with no excuse, not a justifiable one anyway, um, don't see a person. They don't see a soul. They don't see a life that's worth saving. They see a body. They see a color of skin that is offensive to them, that threatens their existence, their essence, and their responses put them down. Which, you know, is not fair because we're just human beings. We just have different colored skin. So um, uh, I was thinking of the difference between uh Candyman from 1992 and uh the two the 2021 film and the first one um the I guess we're supposed to call him an antagonist played by Tony Todd Candyman um he's like an innocent black man whose mistake is falling in love with and um eloping if I remember the story correctly with a white woman. And for that, he is, uh, he meets a very horrible ending at the hands of her brothers. And so when anybody, and (laughs) I find this kind of funny, not funny, ironic, um, that mostly white people dared to look in the mirror and say Candyman five times. And, you know, he would murder them. And I think it was out of spite because in death, uh, Candyman had white people at his mercy and he was just as ruthless as his um, fiance's uh, or his bride's brothers were, you know? And um, I mean, in the second film, he mostly seems to kill assholes. I excuse my French, which is like, which speaks to, uh, well, evolution, but also his humanity and that he recognizes that his pain is something that needs to be like, he needs to let go of it. He needs to heal from that and do some good. And protect the black community, and it seems like he's protecting the underdog instead of just killing people out of spite. But it also made me think of black, the Black Lives Matter movement, and how people were when people were destroying stuff. A lot of people, a lot of white people, kept saying, "Well, how are you going to get people to listen to you if all you're doing is destroying things?" And it's like you push somebody hard enough, they're going to push back and they're going to push back harder. And the point that Black people are trying to make is you've built this economy on our backs. We're not benefiting from it. We're just asking for basic human decency and we're not getting it. So we're going to break some shit and hopefully you listen to us. Um, and, and, and that's what I... am That's sort of the connection I got with, like, Candyman, where it's like, okay, um, I was killed for nothing, really, so I'm, I'm gonna start, I'm gonna start destroying people's lives, you know, for shiggles, because my life was so insignificant, I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna show them devastation, if that makes sense, (laughs) um, And so I think that understanding how racial discourses started um, in the early modern period uh, helps us understand that, A, a lot of people say racism doesn't exist anymore because they aren't racism. It's like, just because you don't say the N-word doesn't mean um, you maybe don't uh, say Microaggressions to non-white folks, um, uh, but also it it's valuable to understand just how far back racial discourse has started, so we can understand that Black people are not trying to fight for nothing. They're fighting a system that's existed for so long, that's had them disadvantaged for so long. And it's a system that's based on uh, mostly images and lies and stereotypes. It's like racism. Race is a social construct. Somebody woke up and decided to say, I'm white. I'm superior to anybody who has darker skin than me. And... So many decades later, people are still suffering for it. And that's all I got. And this ended up being longer than it was supposed to be. So sorry about that. And I hope it makes sense. Okay, bye.